I remember just sort of like having all of these scenes, the first two hours of this journey, I was hysterically laughing because I was like shown these scenes of life on earth and I could see how everything was just a story. Like we tell all of these stories, everything is just based on stories and meaning. And it was cracking me up. And um, once I, the medicine sort of got to this high point, I felt myself starving. I had been fasting to take this, this journey and I was literally so hungry. And I remember feeling like I was crawling through the desert and I was like calling out to the medicine woman, like, please just give me some food. And there was this moment where I realized, oh, snap, you're going you're gonna to know exactly what it feels like to die of hunger. And it was at that moment that I just gave up. This is a space for, but never limited to, people of color. We're discussing sacred plant medicine, pregnancy, parenthood, and more. You know, there's such a stigma on who can open the floor for conversation on these topics that are viewed as taboo or even inappropriate. This fact alone has made so many become fearful of the very thing that could help us rebuild families, create our own businesses, and most importantly, trust our role in this world as future ancestors. So wherever you are, take a cleansing breath and do your best to listen with an open mind, heart, and spirit, and let love lead the way. I'm your host, Taylor. Welcome to the Tailored Healing Collective podcast. Today, I have the pleasure of hosting Dr. Andrea Pennington. Though she has many accolades <laughs> that I have seen um, throughout her bio and her page that I found via Instagram, one of the most important ones to me that I've found was that she understands a little bit about the power of transformation. So thank you, Dr. Andrea, for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure and an honor. Could you tell us a little bit about yourself and the work that you do? Absolutely. I am an integrative physician and I facilitate psychedelic assisted therapy. And I've been doing this all around the world. I now live in the south of France. I'm an American though. Uh, my parents are, are black. My mother was from South America, British Guyana, and my father is African American. So I've had the distinct privilege of kind of navigating the world of being a, an ethnic mix that most people in the United States didn't understand, <laughs> which I say that because it informs my work now. Um, coming out of the Coming out of hiding, basically, with some of the things that I, I attempted and tried in the past on my own healing journey, including the use of psychedelics, um, I'm, I've been sharing my, my voice a little more loudly and a little more proudly, simply because I've lost friends 
who died by suicide, who had tried traditional therapy and traditional medical systems and they didn't work. And because I kept my own mental health history a secret, these individuals maybe didn't even know they could talk to me about what they were going through. And I don't want anyone else to take their lives or end their lives without knowing that there are, there are other options for us out here. Wow. To hear that you have kind of combined your experience with your friends into your work, that must be amazing to turn that into a passion for your life and the way that you touch others around you. It is. It's, it's definitely has taken my career to a whole nother level. I mean, I'm, I've been in practice for 22 years, but my own mental health journey and then you know, losing these friends, one of them was during the, the, the COVID pandemic. It's just brought an, a whole nother level of awakening and a deepening of the sense of interconnectedness. I think the pandemic did that for a lot of us, like knowing that what happens in one part of the world can dramatically impact people on the other side of the world. And, and to not be able to be close to some of these friends, um, it just, it, yeah, it just brought a whole nother level of weight, but not in, in the sense of it being a burden, but a sense of it, of the work that I do as having a new level of importance. I've always been an advocate for people to embrace vitality and to heal. Um, but I think just recognizing my own healing journey, uh, it just it just brought a whole new level of awareness to it. So may I ask you, when starting your journey, even before we okay. get into the talk of psychedelics and plant medicine, what was the catalyst into your own healing journey where you took a look in the mirror and said, okay, I'm in pain or something needs to change in my life? Well, I mean, I, I grew up in a very dysfunctional family. Um, if you're familiar with the adverse childhood experiences score, the ACE score, mine is a seven. Um, but to be honest, I didn't even realize the level of trauma that I was suppressing and enduring until I was in my mid thirties. Now I'm 51 now, and it took decades before I really woke up to the level of dysfunction and how it had impacted me. So to take you back a little bit, when I first started my career, graduated from medical school, um, I was, uh, what was I, 28 at the time. And I was instantly working with a population who had eating disorders and substance use disorder because my mom, who was a physician, had introduced me to acupuncture. And this was back in the day when, you know, crack cocaine was like this scourge across America. And what we found is that there was this treatment program being offered to people in, in lieu of going to jail, they could do this auricular, meaning ear acupuncture protocol. And so I was introduced to that in my third year of med school. So by the time I graduated, I was using acupuncture in an intensive outpatient program for substance use and eating disorders. And it just opened my mind to this concept of mind and body and healing. And it was the initiation of trauma training because as you can imagine, many people who had eating disorders or who were abusing substances, they had trauma in their past. And the, the light bulb moment for me came when I started looking at a small subset of my patients who weren't getting better. 
Now I had created this beautiful multidisciplinary holistic healing environment where everything was taken care of. Like it was feng shui, like we did everything to make it like the ultimate healing oasis. So being a young physician, I think I was 30 something at the time, I was like, everyone should get better. Like we're creating this perfect place, giving you all the support, the education, everything. And what I discovered in one of our sort of multidisciplinary meetings was a certain subset of my patients didn't believe that they deserved happiness, vitality, success. And nobody ever used the words, I don't love myself, but that's what it came back to. It's like, they don't love themselves. They don't think that they're worthy. And even though I didn't have an eating disorder, I wasn't abusing substances. I had lived with depression for many years that nobody could understand because it's like, you have everything, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I, it, something about that just struck me really deeply. And I was like, I have some of the same shit that they do, even though I'm coping in a different way. And that was really the beginning of me looking at my own psyche to understand why was I high functioning, but still miserably depressed. And, and that's what really started me on this path of, of self-love for myself and for my patients. Yes. And I've gone through your many works and plan to read quite a few of the books myself because learning about the pain that other people are in and seeing how similar we are to others is almost is almost astounding to me because you look at so many other people and their life experiences and think they're so different from you because they have more, because they walk a different path and we're so much more alike than we realize. Yep. And that's, that's part of, you know, why I'm here talking to you. It's why I host the conscious evolution podcast. I, I want people to realize that all of us as humans, we are on this evolutionary journey of the soul. And we are all so alike, no matter where in the world you are, you're human. Yes, we are all human. So I'd like to ask you, what was the start of your own plant medicine journey? And how did that feel going on working in the medical field? How was that for you? Well, I was first called to ayahuasca back in 2007. Um, I was at a trance dance event again, on my own journey of just trying to understand why I was so depressed. And when the shaman told me about ayahuasca and the retreats he was leading in the jungle of Hawaii, I was like, no, okay, that sounds scary. Um, it actually was 10 years later that I heard the call again while I was in Peru and had the opportunity to sit in ceremony with a beautiful ayahuasquera. And for me, it was just this very deep, cathartic experience of connecting to my authentic self. I connected to my mother. My mother at the time was, was really starting to wither away with dementia. Her memory was going and I just, I grieved. I grieved the loss of this connection to my mother who had been you know, so influential in my life as a physician. I also grieved the fact that she was a, an emotionally distant mom and it was like I was seeing the weight of that in that ceremony. So that was in 2017, and I never thought that I would tell anyone that I sat in ceremony. But then I, that same year, I met this other medicine woman, uh, Sol Whitefire, from Iceland, and then got to sit in ceremony with her 
in Iceland. And the experiences that I had sitting with ayahuasca were so like, it was like shining a light on my psyche, on the parts of me that I was very familiar with, but didn't understand certain meanings and mechanisms. And coming out of it, I just slowly but surely started telling people. But it was really after sitting in ceremony with um, Soul Whitefire for a psilocybin mushroom experience, where I once again connected with my mother, that was when I realized I have been sitting on just a powder keg of trauma that I never had the right to fully name because part of it dealing with my mother, my mother came from South America. She came from a very proud family. There was a whole lot of secrecy. Like you just don't, you don't talk, you don't say a lot of things. And that ceremony, which was just before my mother transitioned, opened my eyes to how much suffering I was suppressing. And it was at that moment that I realized, wow, I've been very fortunate to have been exposed to medicine men and women who I felt were safe. I felt well taken care of. I trusted them. I knew where the medicine was coming from. And I realized that the majority of people that I had been treating over the last two decades, they didn't have access to that. You know, the, the friends that I lost to suicide where would they have gone? Like they wouldn't have been candidates, nor would they have probably thought to fly to Peru to sit in ceremony. And that was when I realized I needed to, to do something about it. And so last year I enrolled in the MAPS program through the Integrative Psychiatry Institute to get certified to serve ketamine, MDMA, and psilocybin when those become legal. Um, because I wanted more people of color, people who've had complex trauma histories to be in a safe environment. I really believe strongly in the ceremonial aspect. I believe that for me, sitting in ceremony was magical and honoring the indigenous traditions that these medicines have come from. For me, that just brought a whole other level of sacred purity and magic. And I, I kind of have this fear that the medical model is going to strip away some of that sacred purity. I mean, there are people, there are certainly physicians and therapists that are tr trying to add in ritual. But I just realized that a lot of the people who might come to me because of my background as a physician and a, a trauma healer, I want them to, to know that they can experience these things in a safe way. And, and yeah, so that's why I'm doing it. Thank you for sharing that. And during that time, did you experience ego death? Yes, I have experienced the magical ego death several times. Um, I'm trying to think of the first time. I guess, I, I don't think I really experienced it the first ayahuasca journey. I think I was still kind of holding on. Um, but I have experienced ego dissolution. I'll just tell you about my most recent, which was my first heroic dose of psilocybin mushrooms. I did five grams in Iceland with my, my dear friend Jill. And I remember just sort of like having all of these scenes, the first two hours of this journey, I was hysterically laughing because I was like shown these scenes of life on earth. 
and I could see how everything was just a story. Like we tell all of these stories, everything is just based on stories and meaning. And it was cracking me up. And um, once I, the medicine sort of got to this high point, I felt myself starving. I had been fasting to take this, this journey and I was literally so hungry. And I remember feeling like I was crawling through the desert and I was like calling out to the medicine woman, like, please just give me some food. And there was this moment where I realized, oh snap, you're going you're gonna to know exactly what it feels like to die of hunger. And it was at that moment that I just gave up and I felt myself kind of collapse into this desert and disintegrate into dust particles. And it was at that moment that everything just sort of swirled into energy and I realized, okay, the physical form is gone, the ego is gone, I am this, this energy field. And it, it, was, it was pretty dramatic. Um, so it, that one sticks out in my mind the most. So with all the stages you've been on and all the speaking that you have done over your time, to experience ego death, do you feel separate or more a part of the person that you've become over the years? Do I feel separate or more apart? Hmm. That's a very- I meant more apart. That's not even the correct phrasing. Do you feel more connected is what I meant. I feel, I definitely feel more connected to the oneness. Um, I know you've seen my TED talk, so you heard about my near-death experience back in 2005, where I called out to God to take my life. And that was also a form of ego death. It was a, a self-surrender. And I remember being kind of dissolved into oneness. And it was that experience where I realized that we are all one and that we are these little droplets of God consciousness and we incarnate. And you know, the whole concept of duality of I'm this and not that, it's an illusion. And so I think with all of my psychedelic experiences, they just keep reinforcing what I saw in that near-death experience, that we are all one. I am, you are a divine expression of God consciousness. And we feel separate because we happen to be using that consciousness in this earthly construct, but I definitely feel more connected um, to all, all of life. That's beautiful. You know, I hear a lot of people feeling disconnect sometimes. Not everybody feels that connect the very first time because they feel lost in this person that they're identifying with now or they no longer identify with anymore. So it's beautiful to hear that you had that connection, but in several different ways, not just with the medicine, but in different ways in your life. So thank you. Yeah. So another question that I had for you today was when you were speaking about realizing that the medicine was not available for everyone. Can you speak a little to how you feel about the separation between what is available to communities of color versus what is not right now within the medical field and with the growing psychedelic renaissance that we have going on right now? Yeah, I find it super challenging because on the one hand, you can certainly get your hands on psilocybin mushrooms, and all sorts of other substances in the black market, you know, buying street drugs. For me, that just makes me nervous because you never know what the purity is, um, unless of course you're growing it yourself, right? Um, on the medical side, it's cost prohibitive. It's really expensive to 
engage in ketamine therapy, for example. I mean, ketamine is the only legal substance that can give you a psychedelic-like experience for healing, you know, suicidality, for example, or, or treating suicidality. And so the majority of brown and, and black people are not necessarily going to have the money to find a, a therapist who's offering that. Um, and then there's also the stigma. There's two, two aspects to that stigma for black and brown people. One is just the stigma of seeking out mental health treatment, admitting that we are not strong or that we don't have, that we don't have it all together or that we have depression or anxiety. That's a big deal. And so a lot of the black and brown people that I talk to, they admit that they use other substances to medicate themselves instead of seeking medical treatment. And so there's that stigma. And then the idea of getting on a psychedelic, you know, these are substances that black and brown people have been incarcerated for. And, and I include in that marijuana. You know, there are certain sativa strains that actually create a, a psychedelic experience. They, and some people are even combining that with, with psychotherapy. But because many of us have associated weed and other psychedelics with either the white culture, the hippie culture, or the incarceration, incarcer incarceration culture, there are a lot of us that wouldn't even necessarily seek out this treatment. And that's, again, another reason why I'm sharing my story of how these medicines have helped me and why I now want to facilitate uh, therapy for other people. So I'm, I'm really, I'm looking forward to being able to offer group settings um, so that we can lower the cost. Uh, I'm looking forward to engaging in clinical trials, which I know is another hot topic for, for people of color. But the only way that you can access legally psilocybin or MDMA is through a research study or through um, a site that may have what they call expanded access, um, maybe even compassionate care if you're up in Canada. So what I would like to be able to do is to work with some universities to implement our treatment program, which uses a holistic healing framework so that we can create either expanded access sites or research facility sites where people can experience psychedelic assisted therapy. Because most of the research up to this point has been so skewed towards white folks that we need more more data we need more results of what happens with people of color and especially having it delivered in a culturally informed and culturally sensitive environment because you can create a lot of harm by sitting in ceremony with people who aren't like you who may have their own racial biases and anyway did that answer your question yes it did thank you have you ever felt separate during times you have sat in ceremony being a woman of color? I have. I have. Um, one of the sessions that I participated in, um, I didn't speak the same language as most people. And most people there spoke English, but they chose to speak in their own language. And so there was a moment coming out of the medicine where I felt othered, um, which for me brought up those feelings that I've had all of my life. You know, I mentioned at the start that I have parents f who are black and brown from South America and, and North America. And, you know, I was bullied and teased 
for the color of my skin and the kink of my hair and told that I wasn't black enough. And so being in the medicine space and coming out and feeling that sense of being othered again was really, really poignant for me, which is again why I want to make sure that there are people of color that can facilitate these therapeutic experiences. Because it, it, for me, it just brought up you know, so much of that feeling of isolation that I felt as a young person that I never want to feel again and, and wouldn't want to push that on anyone else. So there's something I want to expand on a little. And you were speaking about low income being one of the reasons why you want to help reach out with this medicine on education and clinical trials. But there's another aspect to it that I'm curious about for you. Other than it being for elites, you know, when it comes to the availability, I want to ask, and I say this very sparingly because I know a lot of people can be triggered when hearing things like this, especially within the black and brown community. Outside of the availability availability just for the funds, do you believe that it's going to also have an impact on the way that these societies function in communities of color? Because sometimes it goes beyond having the money to do it. Sometimes it's the trust, the trust of going to a doctor or to let someone in that does not look like you. How do you feel about that? I, I agree with you 100%. It's not, it's not just about the money. Um, and as I was saying, you know, being able to sit with someone who understands where you're coming from, who's either checked their biases or has already done their anti-racist work, that's a big deal. Um, as well as, as the, the income barrier, for me, I think the biggest challenge is if we look at the way that the medicalization is happening, if the FDA approves psilocybin and MDMA therapy as it's currently proposed, it requires two therapists. So at least one of them is a physician or PhD who can write for the drug, uh, and that can also be a nurse practitioner. So someone who could legally write the prescription and then another therapist. So when you think of having two people there for several hours, plus all of the integration sessions and preparation, that makes it cost prohibitive. And, and that's another reason why I want to look at the group therapy model to make it more accessible. But I think even if we are doing group sessions, um, the, the, the approach that my team is taking is that we want to be able to have a for-profit arm of our company because there are always going to be, I always have clients who say, I just want to work with you. Like, I, it's great that you have the group model. I hear that group therapy actually is good because you, there's more energy transfer and, and good stuff, but they, don't, they want private. And so what I would like to be able to do is have a portion of that money create scholarships or a fund for people to get training in these modalities and for people to be able to access these modalities. So I don't know, is that answering your question about the, the cost issue or the, the low income issue? Yes. And I think I, I go into that because, again, beyond that and what I've experienced in black and brown communities, it is a matter of trust when it comes to so many do not trust going to the doctor. They don't trust going to white doctors in particular. Uh, they would rather just handle things at home, even when it includes their health, not just beyond their beyond their mental health. When it comes to physical health, too, they just don't trust anyone. But then you still have the legal factor in it as well. So working as a therapist and someone who is working with these medicines as well, 
Would you suggest anything to people within our community who are afraid to go to the doctor, but still choose to work with the medicine, obviously with the black market, but outside of that? No matter where you're getting it from, whether it's a licensed physician, a therapist, or the homie on the street, get to know the person who's providing you. Um, I, I, I'm biased in that I, I would prefer that people do this in a safe setting with people they trust, uh, even if those are just com community leaders or retreat facilitators who know how to hold space rather than just doing it on your own. There's certainly a time and space for social and celebratory recreational, but I'm talking about on the therapeutic side. I think black and brown people have a good reason to feel distrust with the current state of the medical system. It hasn't treated us well. It's completely full of bias. It's a very patriarchal white supremacist system that is not rigged in our favor as black and brown people. So I think having that healthy fear or skepticism is a good thing. And with that, if you are looking to engage, then you ask all the questions that you would want to know about. Have they had any legal sanctions against them? How do they look at physical touch when it comes to sessions? Have they had any sexual uh, allegations against them? Um, what do they do if, if somebody has, you know, what we call a spiritual emergence or if they have, you know, a quote unquote bad trip? Are they prepared for that? Um, those are the kinds of questions that I think people need to be asking. But for me on the trust angle, um, you know, I've been studying this for the last couple of years and, and there was a beautiful interview that I did with Sarah Reed, who is a, a licensed marriage and family therapist. Uh, from the US and she talked about her experience being a study participant and therapist in the MAPS trial. And when you talk about this level of trust, we have to recognize that when you sit with these medicines, we've already talked about ego dissolution, all of the ego barriers are dropped. And that can happen if you have just an overwhelming dose there is an element of agreeing to surrender. Like we have to like willingly let go. And when you have dropped all of your defenses, you are in an incredibly vulnerable state. And so if you've had any fear about that medical establishment or that provider, that can influence your trip. And, you know, there's transference and countertransference. So you want to make sure that the therapist or the facilitator that you're working with um, has been trained. Uh, it's not a given just because one is brown or black. It's not a given that we're going to know how to handle these things. Now, of course, I'm coming again with a huge bias because I have been treating for 20 years people with the most significant traumas. And I've seen what happens when they lower their defenses and stuff comes out. You got to know how to handle that without taking it personally, without getting agitated or reactive. And I mean, I went through training for that. And a lot of the underground folks, they haven't had the years and years of training. So I, I think asking these questions, having that skepticism and fear is a good thing. And if you're willing to get to know your provider, you can get past that, but it takes dialogue. And if you come up against someone who's not willing to even answer your questions, well, that's your red flag right there. Just move away.
Thank you. And I completely understand the bias as well, because if you've worked in an industry for so long and you've seen the way people react to things, you have this very innate understanding of how people work outside of the medicine. So if you add the medicine in, that just gives you a little bit more attention to detail and know that their brain chemistry is changing in the way that they're reacting to things. So thank you again for sharing that. With your experiences that you've had with the medicine and throughout your life, what has been the most pivotal lesson you've learned through it all? Hmm. The most pivotal lesson. Well, this is still very fresh for me. My mother transitioned uh, just about a year ago. And I've shared with you a little bit of kind of uncovering more of my childhood trauma. I think the most incredible takeaway was how amazing the human psyche is at hiding facts, memories, changing scenarios, because the human psyche is geared towards survival. If we confronted trauma, the real traumas that we face on a daily basis, many of us would not be functional. And so my biggest takeaway, especially sitting in, in ceremony in the last several months, is just been like, oh my God, it's a miracle that I'm even alive. Like the things that I endured in my childhood, the craziness that I got into in my teenage years, it's a miracle. And I also find it just really telling how much I have been carrying that I wasn't even aware of. And I'm not just talking about memories of trauma, I'm talking about limiting beliefs. Like I carried this belief that everything bad that happened was all my fault. Do you know how that can impact your relationships and your career and your sense of self? And I told you, I'm 51. Like some of these revelations have been in the last two years. And for me, um, I think that's the biggest thing. It's like just recognizing that this human brain and psyche are, are so vast and so complex. And it's a gift that we have these medicines now, I believe. I believe that one of the things that this crazy pandemic has done is one, like you talked about interconnectedness, like we now understand that our actions impact the whole world, the whole planet. And it's forced people to really look at their mental health. And as this psychedelic renaissance is blooming and research is coming out and the FDA is reinvestigating psychedelics, I think we as a species are now being given an opportunity to consciously participate in our evolution. And I believe that these plants and fungi and frogs and toads and cactuses, they are all a part of it. Like nature is conspiring to help us wake the fuck up. I, I completely agree. And I've felt that many times in my own experiences I most recently had in pregnancy working with mushrooms and even afterwards working with the medicine. So let's talk how to change your mind. The hit that is all over the world, it's gone global. I wanna talk about how you believe it's affecting black and brown communities right now. I, I've seen so many people get so excited. I've seen TikToks, I've seen YouTube videos, people so astounded, have you seen how to change your mind? You know, Psychedelics are the new rave, they're out here, we're bringing them back and that's great. 
But I want to know what you think about how it's affecting black and brown people right now. All right. Well, you know, <clears throat> we're going to shake it up. And uh... all right. So let's just dive in. On the one hand, I, I think it's going to help us. I think black and brown folks, we watch Netflix. We're on the socials. And so people are seeing this white guy, you know, share about plants and fungi and all that. And it's helping us to wake up to the possibility of these medicines. So that's one thing, that's awareness. You may have seen this, uh, it was not a very popular post, but something came up in my meditation recently. I was on an, a rampage and I'll admit it, I, I'm, I'm sat in ceremony and I'm still not perfect. I'm, I'm not fully enlightened, I'm not levitating. I still apparently have some work to do. But I was on a rampage about, with full of anger towards cishet white men who are promoting the science, promoting these, these chemicals, trying to take away the, the psychedelic experience and just find the molecule that can help you and, and the appropriation of ceremonial rituals that came from our folks, black, brown, people of color, all around the globe. So I was really on a rampage and then it hit me. You know, a lot of us in the psychedelic space will say that these medicines call to you. Whether it's a frog, a cactus, it's ayahuasca, it's like you hear a call, just like on the hero's journey, you might refuse the call for a while, eventually you say yes, and you sit in ceremony to have a relationship with these medicines. And it's, in the indigenous view, it's not just for your own healing, it's for healing your community, healing the collective, and getting in right relationship with Mother Earth. And so someone was talking about, you know, these plants, they have evolved to use humans to further their agenda so that we don't keep killing the earth and we promote the spread. And it dawned on me, well, if plants can use us, then they're also using cishet white men. So as much as we want to demonize them and criticize them, in a way, this is still helping the plants agenda to heal us as a species. And more black and brown people are getting aware of these medicines. And there are more woke folks who are engaging in reciprocity. They're giving back. They're starting to protect like peyote, for example. They're saying, okay, we can do psychedelics, but let's protect peyote for the, the Native Americans because it's part of their sacred traditions. So I think that ultimately, God bless Michael Pollan. And yeah, I was angry he didn't have a lot of black and brown folks credited in the book. Like I read the book before I saw the Netflix series. I think in Netflix, they cleaned it up. They cleaned up a little bit of his mistakes in whitewashing by including um, Erica Gagnon, the, the ceremonial leader who's featured right there in, in the opening scenes of the, of the series. So I think he's, he's being used. I must just say it like that. Yeah, I, I have to feel the same way, but I do worry that even with the medicine working and that worry naturally just comes up because we've seen this before, you know, white settlers come in, claim something as their own, bring it back into their communities and claim it as their own. Meanwhile, demonizing, criminalizing, pushing the brown and black community completely out of it as if they didn't receive it from them in the first place. 
So yes, I work. <laughs> but, yes, but look at how many of us are now taken to the airwaves. You're doing this holding a baby in your arms. So 10 years ago, you would not have caught me having this open conversation that's going to blast out all around the world. So now there are more of us and there are indigenous people who are saying, uh-uh, we are not going to have these white colonizers taking our stuff. I think because more of the black and brown folks who are woke are, and have platforms and have allies, let's remember that not all white people are, are evil. They're not all the devil. There are supporters. I think that we are also feeling more confident in being vocal. And again, I am so disgusted with all of the racial atrocities that are paraded out. However, it's making us more vocal. And I think that's, that's the gift in all of this. We're not going to take this lying down. Indigenous people are not taking this lying down. And it, it could be business as usual, but I think we're hitting a tipping point where enough of us are going to say, no, this is, this is not going to be business as usual. I definitely feel it activating something in all of us. I mean, that's what led me to starting my podcast. It was a call I got from Mushrooms during that time, but I had no clue that it was going to evolve into me using my voice vocally, physically showing me with my child and my children online to show that this is not evil. My children are not hurt or harmed in any way. Though I'm not in the medical industry, I still want to make it look normal for people who don't know because I've been judged by people within my own community who think it's the equivalent to heroin or crack. And like, no, that's not it. That's not what it is. So one of the final questions I have for you is what led you to using your voice? I mean, through all of this, we've obviously discussed a lot of things, the catalyst in your life that brought you to working with transformation, uh, finding your own healing journey, but your, the Conscious Evolution podcast, what, what brought you to deciding to do that when everything you've spoken about is about transformation, but not necessarily in this realm? It was these three poignant deaths in the last few years and recognizing that my silence is not an option. Now I've been counseled by people saying, oh, even if you had told your story, you might not have been able to prevent those two suicides. And that's true, maybe. But I now recognize that being silent and looking like I'm gonna pass judgment on people using any substance, not just these lovely little plants and fungi. I mean, if people wanna use other substances, that, that's your right and that's your privilege. Who am I to judge? But I recognize that my being silent is harmful. And the, I think obviously sitting in ceremony, you get messages, you get downloads. For me, I see visions and I, I saw that I had to speak up uh, to save lives, quite possibly. I don't know if that's what this will do, but that's my aim. I believe the medicine calls out to everyone with a purpose and with intent. I know for myself, it has definitely helped me amplify my throat center because I've always been afraid of speaking my truth because of how people would look at me. I've always thought of the world in a different way than my peers and to not be afraid to share that with the world as a black woman 
it's been exciting, but also very scary at the same time. But that call is important because everything that you're doing, everything that I'm doing and people who look like us who are calling out how to change your mind, not necessarily in the they're taking it away from us, but in the we're taking it back kind of way. So it's very much appreciated. Thank you so much for the work that you do. Well, thank you. Thank you for your voice. And I'm looking forward to interviewing you on the Conscious Evolution podcast because I'm so fascinated by your story and your journey. Thank you so much. I, I look forward to it. So can you let listeners know how to find you? You have so many great pieces of educational content out there and I'm so excited for other people to find you too. So let us know how to find you. Yeah, I'm active on all the socials at Dr. Andrea Pennington. You can also visit my website, andreapennington.com. I run several companies, including a publishing company, and um, we are actually looking for more people to share stories in an upcoming book called Sacred Medicine, where we're specifically asking people to share a story of psychedelics use. It could be frog medicine. Um, But what we want to do is make sure that even if you've had a bad trip and you want to share that experience so that you're educating other people. Um, So at my company, Make Your Mark Global, we'll be releasing that book. And I'd invite anyone who has a story they'd like to share to hit me up. Thank you so much for joining us today. I am thrilled for people to find you, to find more about it, and to find more people of color, especially women, who can share these stories with everyone, to normalize it, to bring it back into our communities, and to help heal everyone around us. So this has been the Tailored Healing Collective podcast. Thank you again, Dr. Andrea. Thank you so much for having me. And until next time, let love lead the way. Peace. Peace.
of your soul. It is a vibration so powerful and intricate that it created you. Breathe.